So we've, um, we're traveling through the book of uh, Genesis all year, and, um, but we're not in Genesis today, and nor are we in our kind of what we might call Christmas carols. This is, we are in our Christmas season, but Christmas carols. And um, what we wanted to do this morning is we had, um, it came out of a conversation I had with a member of another church who said, oh, I, I love my church at Christmas, except for the fact that basically we lose December to carol services and always geared for guests they said which is great but actually as christians we never kind of stop and just do church normally around christmas so we thought oh let's do that the sunday before christmas let's do church normally but also let's specifically think about um christmas and the incarnation so um uh, the reading which will come later is is a famous christian uh, is a famous christmas reading but what i want to talk to you about this morning is i want to talk about hope so this is um, like 20, 30 years ago. This is, this is about the time uh, in my kind of Christmas journey, like as a child, where like my hope would have reached kind of like quite a high level. You know, you're, you're close enough to Christmas Day to know it's definitely coming. And you still haven't had that kind of, um, uh, if you're here and in your youth and you still go through this, I'm really sorry, but you still haven't had that sometimes, that crushing disappointment when Christmas Day turns out to not be as good present-wise as you thought it was going to be. Um, if, if, that has, if I am the only person to have ever experienced that, uh, I, I'm just talking to myself this morning, but I, I reckon I'm not. I remember the year, I can even tell you the year, but I won't, the year that myself and my two cousins were all given exactly the same scarf by my granny. We all had scarves. And the next year, she gave us um, a slightly different color of exactly the same scarf. And it was very clear to us that in one year, she'd bought six and didn't know what to do. So I'll do three one year and three the next year. You know, but you're kind of like, you know, you know what it's like. Oh, oh, do you remember the big massive box that you would open and it wasn't exactly what you thought it was going to be anyway so this time so there's this kind of sense of this moment in christmas where there's a lot of hope going on and maybe uh, we're going to be seeing people and some of those relationships actually haven't been brilliant and we are hoping that in the next week to 10 days that times with them will go well or there will be an element of healing or restoration and we have we bring hope into that or maybe we've um, basically dragged ourselves to the end of the year uh, the office has closed for a week or 10 days and we are hoping for rest and then we've had a look and realized what we've filled our diaries with so i think hope is kind of a, a kind of a thing that's um, a theme that runs around this time of year and um, it's also very big if um I can't think there would have been many of us. And might have, I can think of one person here who might have been there. Anybody at the Memorial Ground yesterday for the Rovers match? Just me. Anybody know what happened? Anyway, so we've had an, an, an interesting week. We lost our manager and our assistant manager whilst we were fourth in the league. And they left to go to a team that's 18th in the league below us. Uh, and yesterday we played the team that's third in the league. Uh, and actually we went toe-to-toe with them. And we find ourselves... Today, I'm saying we because I consider myself as a kind of a key member of the Bristol Rovers uh, setup. <laughs> I'm not sure they're aware of that, but I am. Uh, but we find ourselves fourth with a game in hand that if we win, we would go second. I don't know if you know. Any- I don't know if you know anything about football, but but by Christmas, usually the leagues are beginning to shake down, and you are aware by Christmas if you're going to have a mid-table season, a relegation season, or a potential promotion season. And actually, yesterday you could feel it in the ground: eight and a half thousand people with hope. Or, I'm guessing more hands will go up. Hands up if you've seen the new Star Wars movie. Wow, that is quite small. I expected more. Anyway, I'm not going to say anything about it. But again, Star Wars is all about hope. The fourth film, or the first for those of us who like to do things properly, is called A New Hope. So I'm going to talk about hope. 
And I think hope is a really interesting thing. I was struck the morning after the election. I'm not doing a politics talk uh, this morning, but I was struck the morning after the election when Jo Swinson gave what I thought was a really brave speech. Um, She had lost her seat in the Houses of Parliament for the second time in four years. And she gave a really brave speech about the stuff that she stands for and about the future. And I thought she was very honest and very real. But what struck me was she, she, she tried to talk about hope. And in that, she fell into the major problem, I think, of kind of post-Christendom. And, and she named herself as a humanist and as a humanism. Is that she did not know where to send people. So she had this moment where she said, we might get there. And then kind of effectively shrugged and goes, I don't know where there is. And what the phrase that she used, which really struck me, was that basically hope was a door somewhere, but we don't know where, that we might get to open. And I, and, and I was just struck by that, that actually here is somebody who believes in a better world, but doesn't actually quite know where it is, or what it looks like, or how to get there. And so is left relying in her own strength and in those around her to try and find somewhere that she doesn't have a map to or a key to open. And what I want to talk to us about this morning is the fact that in Jesus, not just at Christmas, we are always invited into a sure and a certain hope. That in Jesus, hope is not a door that we might find and may be able to open that is a person who has come to us and is leading us somewhere. And it is sure and it is certain. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 9, which is going to come on the screen. Uh, But also there are Bibles uh, around the church, and you might want to open it up um, if you've brought your Bible or are on your phone. And the context, just as I dive into this, is we are hundreds of years before Jesus, uh, and we are dealing with some people um, who need hope. Um, God's kingdom um, post-Solomon has split into two. Um, there's, uh, the northern kingdom will fall. The southern kingdom will eventually fall. Um, Assyria is, 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 is amassing to the north, major empire. Egypt is to the south. And, and, and these, these kind of beginnings of failing kingdoms find, them, find themselves on the key trade route um, that actually if you want a geopolitical power in the world at the time that you want to control. Um, already um, lands have fallen. Um, and there is suffering. There is poverty. And there is despair. And these are the people who are God's people who are called to be a blessing and a light to the nations. Who God has made promises through King David that his throne will be established forever and his kingdom will be great. And they are wondering what is going on. And and the question they are asking themselves is, is there any hope? And into this, um, the prophet Isaiah speaks. Um, And just to say, um, some people will know this, but if you don't know this, when you read the Old Testament prophecies, um, they work... Uh, rather like um, uh, mountain rangers in that, in that they operate on numerous different levels. So if you've ever been in high mountains um, and you look across, um, you can see the next mountain and then the next mountain, and then there is a valley in between. And so as Isaiah speaks, um, the first thing he's doing is he's speaking into the context of the day. And actually, a lot of what is said in the reading we're about to read um, is answered in and around Isaiah chapter 37. Um, and God at work through the nation then. So you can go and read it later on. And so Isaiah speaks into the immediate situation and says, this is going to happen. But at the same time, he speaks to another mountain range through a valley, which is actually, he speaks to the coming of Jesus. 
and actually what we see in Jesus. And there's enough in the text, and we'll see that, that points to that. That isn't for Isaiah's day, but is for the coming of Jesus' day. And then he points even further ahead, and we, said, we prayed this earlier on in, our, in, in the prayer that we all prayed, to when Jesus comes again in glory. And so as we read this, we are reading truths that um, applied then, then, and then. And then, and we look back and we see what happened, but also we look now. And so what we're reading now is we're reading, we're going to talk about what it means that Jesus has come, is here by his spirit, and will come again. Did that make sense? Excellent. Very good. Isaiah chapter 9, reading from verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's very difficult to read that and try not to sing it, isn't it? It's like if you know the the famous tune. Right, I'm going to do three things. First of all, I'm going to talk about the hope, talk about sure and certain hope, the hope that Jesus brings, why Jesus can bring that hope, and then how he brings that hope. And then we're going to pray for each other. First of all, the hope um, that Jesus brings. And first of all, start, verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And the first hope that Jesus brings is actually clarity for living. To walk in darkness, it's basically, it's, it, it, it's Isaiah's way of using language to say going about your life, but not knowing where you're headed. Looking for a door, don't know where it is, don't know how to open it. The people walking in darkness will see a great light. Um, Matthew in chapter 4, John in chapter 8, um, will pick up on these very verses as to say that the light is Jesus. The true light that gives life to all men is coming into the world, John says in his prologue. And, and the, the point here is that our hope in Jesus enables us to walk through life, enables us to see where to go and to see what to do. Jesus is the light of the world. And when the lights get switched on, you can find your way about. It's an exclusive truth statement that only in Jesus does the light come, the true light come. And only in Jesus can we truly see our way to the end. The other lights that John refers to um, illuminate partially, but they don't illuminate all the way to the end, and they don't illuminate the truth of who God is and what his plans for this world are. Only in Jesus does the light come. Now, that's an exclusive statement. The thing to say about exclusive statements is that all truth statements are exclusive statements. So, so 
if I say only Jesus lights the way, I exclude everybody who says Jesus doesn't light the way, there is no light to the way, and every, any, any form of religion lights the way. I've excluded them. The person who says there is no light excludes the person who says Jesus is the light, some religions are the light, all religions are the light. The person who says all religions are the light excludes the person who says there is no light, some religions are the light, Jesus is the light. So that, you don't have to agree with me, but what you need to understand is whatever your, state, whatever your response to that statement is, is an exclusive truth statement. The thing I want to pick up about it, though, is, is actually it can sound like, um, uh, it can sound slightly arrogant that we know that only in Jesus can we see our way to the end, that we've got it sorted. Um, and what I want to submit to you is that actually I think it's quite a humble statement compared to most other worldviews. Let me explain why. So some world religions are, are, are very pragmatic in terms of how you get to the end. It's all about what you can do. Islam is a really good example of this. If your good deeds, as outlined in, um, in the Quran, outweigh your bad deeds, you will get to the end. And so when you get to the end, you get to the end in your strength because of what you have done. Yes, God has helped you, but ultimately it's about have you done enough? In Eastern religions, it's about what you have experienced. Have you experienced the right things? Um, for a humanist, it's about actually what can we do to make situations better? I would want to submit to us that actually there's an element of, interestingly enough, arrogance in those. I am here before the throne of Almighty God because I have done enough good works to get me there. It was, what, it was one of the misthinkings that led to the Reformation. Um, our, I, I am here because I have discovered this wonderful experience that everybody else, you know, I'm so much, I've got this experience. Or I am here because actually, you know, we can work it out. We can do this. I want to submit to us that the Christian understanding that Jesus is the only true light is actually quite a humble way of seeing things. Because it says, without Jesus, I'm in the dark. Without Jesus, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. And I need him and I need his people. And actually, it, it, it puts us all in the same place. It doesn't say I'm better than you because I go to church more than you. And looking out here, I know that I do. It's because I'm paid to. Um, you know, it doesn't say that I'm better than you because I've experienced this. Or because I can, you know, it basically says, without Jesus, we're all in the dark. And the, dark, the light has come. It's not arrogance, it's humility to say you need Jesus. And it's the hope that he brings, is that when you don't know what to do, and I was talking to somebody this week whose job has completely changed, and, and they've suddenly found themselves pitched in the space of about 48 hours into a new role, and you could see, I don't know what to do. That actually we need help, and we need advice. And God himself comes and brings it. So hope, the light, verse 2. Verse 3, you've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And then actually the other thing that Jesus brings is, a sure, is, is joy. Um, as the kingdom of God draws near in Jesus, the kingdom of God is a place of joy. And the joy that comes is, is joy to be found in God, in his kingdom, and in being in relationship with him, not in the stuff of life. So if I think about the 8,500 people who were at the memorial ground yesterday. At the moment, you know, the joy of being a Rovers fan is because things are going well. It just takes a few weeks for things to go badly, and joy turns to despair. And if you're a Rovers fan, you, that's quite common. 
Alex is nodding. Um, you know, so jo- when I put joy in other things, if I put joy in my own abilities, um, as I discovered very early on in life, that, that doesn't kind of get you that far as well. Or if I put joy in, in other relationships when they let me down. God offers joy in him. A joy despite, so I think what Holly was alluding to, despite circumstances, in the midst of circumstances, a deep and a lasting joy. George Muller of this parish said, my chief task every day is to find my soul happy or to find joy in the Lord and not in other things. And Jesus brings us a joy that is actually outside of the stuff of our lives, bigger than the stuff of our lives, and will not change as the stuff of our lives change. Verse 4, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, that's a, a reference back to Gideon, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. We can put our hope in Jesus because he brings us freedom. Um, the, the reference then is to the Assyrians um, who, who are oppressing them. And actually the idea of a yoke in those days was a, was a term that you would use uh, to describe the, the kind of the requirements that a, that a king or that a conquering army would put upon you, whether it be taxes or signing up to the army or whatever it might be, the yoke. And the yoke of, a, the yoke of invading armies um, was often very heavy. And what Jesus says is that he doesn't offer us the freedom that the Western world wants, which is the freedom to do what we like. But he offers us the freedom of his yoke to do as he likes and as he determines. And that that yoke brings us a new way of living, which actually we find quite freeing. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I spent um, the bulk of a week um, with some monks in Buckfast Abbey. I was talking to Brother Daniel, who uh, moved into the Abbey in in 1979. And uh, he just had a month off, first time ever, to go and see his brother in America. And I said, oh, he said, it was amazing. He said, because, he said, I got given a credit card. I said, you got given a credit card? He said, yeah. He said, so, I said, sorry, just so I don't, do, do you have money? He goes, no, no, don't have any money. I said, oh, bank account. He said, no, I haven't had a bank account since 1979. He, so he, his eyes lit up. He said, so when I went away, they gave me a preloaded credit card, which I, you know, he said, had an amount a day that I could spend. <laughs> he, was like, he said, and then when I got back, he, he said, I only spent 75% of it. And he said, and then when I got back, I just handed it back into the office. And I might get given again in the future. I said, wow. And then he went, oh, he said, last year, he said, it was our centenary. We went out for a pub lunch. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah, we hadn't been one for 10 years. And I remember thinking, these guys, they get up at 6 in the morning, they pray at 6.30, then they pray at 7.45, then they have breakfast in silence, and then they do some jobs, and they pray at 1, they have lunch in silence, they pray at 2, they do some more work in the afternoon, they pray at 6.30, they have tea in silence, they pray at eight, they go to bed. I remember thinking, this life is so regimented. It's like it's the opposite of free. And then I started thinking as the week went on that they had a freedom that I couldn't even get anywhere near. Um, Arrested Development said about Mr. Wendell, who's a man who's begging on the street, that Mr. Wendell has a freedom that you and I think is dumb, a freedom to be without the worries of a quick-to-fix society for Mr. Wendell. He's a bum. Now, these monks aren't bums, but they are in the same way. They've freed themselves from the yoke of a quick-to-fix society. But the way they've freed themselves is they've taken on another yoke, the yoke of their solemn vows. And when you ask them about it, they will tell you that it is fulfilling and it is joyful. Freedom, my friends, comes from not doing what you like, but putting on the yoke of the king. 
So we can hope in Jesus because he's bringing us light, clarity. He's bringing us joy, which is found in him and not in other stuff. He's bringing us the freedom of his yoke to follow his ways uh, and not the ways of our world and our culture. And in verse 5, he's bringing us peace. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fueled for the fire. The image is a really powerful one. It's basically saying no more wars and all the stuff of war will get rolled up and be burned in domestic fires. So putting it in our wood burners uh, so that, and, and will be used to heat homes. Um, and so it's this image of no more relational breakdown. Uh, and they knew then that there would come a time to an end of the wars that they were worried about then. But actually, if you travel through the Old Testament, you realize they come again. And we know in Jesus uh, that we have found peace, a restored relationship with God, and that we look forward to when it comes in its final fulfillment. And what we find that in Jesus, we find peace. We find our relationship to God restored. And then as a result of that, we find the strength and the ability to restore our relationships with one another. And that's the way it works. In order for me to be restored to you, I need to be restored to God first. A man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer made that very powerfully. That actually when I am restored to God, I can be restored in, through the cross to you. And that is the offer um, of putting our hope in Jesus. Is peace now. The ability to be a peacemaker now and peace in the future. So when we put our hope in Jesus, it's not a kind of like, what does it look like? We can name it. It's clarity for living. It's joy in all circumstances. It's freedom to follow Jesus and his ways. And it's peace in our relationship with God and one another. Why can Jesus do this? And what? Because of who he is. Verse 6. For to to us a child is born. That was somebody who was going to be born then. But also somebody who we remember who was born later. To us a son is given. That's That's a... A point to the pre-existent son of the Trinity. This, the son that is, doesn't need to be born. The son that is given. God coming into our world. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Kingdoms are going to come and go. Cultures will rise and fall. But this God won't. And this God comes to bear our responsibility. We get these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And they are, uh, they are language of the day. They might be used about kings, but applied to Jesus so that we can see what he's like. So let's go, Wonderful Counselor. Um, in a court, you had the counselor, the person who advised the king. It's what Dominic Cummings uh, does for Boris Johnson, or Gus O'Donnell, um, the, cabinet, the old cabinet secretary used to do. And wonderful there, in its original Hebrew, means supernatural. Supernatural wisdom. And that actually this child who is going to be born, this son who is going to be given, is going to have supernatural wisdom for how you can live your life. Light in the darkness. Why, why, why trust what I think I should do? Why trust my culture, which is... You know, why, why should I think my culture is better than any other culture? Why not trust the supernatural wisdom of God as he has revealed it in his son and in his word and through his people? And that's what God wants to bring into your life and to my life, supernatural wisdom. Mighty God, this is, we're basically saying this is deity, top dog, but also it's not weak deity, it's strong deity. God is not far removed wondering what he could do about the world. He is strong and mighty and powerful 
and with us. Why try and live my life in my own strength when there is a mighty God who wants me to live it in his strength? Everlasting Father. The language there means the starter of all things, the creator of all things, the originator of all things. That actually all things have come from him. John will say that about Jesus in his prologue. And that this one from who, who originated all things is the sustainer of all things. And Father makes me straightaway think of identity. I take my name from my Father. That actually we can trust because we are invited into it. We are invited by the strong God to an identity rooted in him that will last forever. Prince of peace. Prince kind of there in terms of the language of a court means this is, you know, like it's like a, a cabinet minister. So this is the person who is responsible for peace. He will bring peace. I don't need, I just need to lean in to what he is doing. I don't need to, I can be a peacemaker, but it's his peace. I don't need, not mine. And that's why we can ground, we can say there is true clarity, joy, freedom and peace because this one who brings it is this God. And, and this is what he's like. And how does he do it? Well, by reigning and establishing his justice forever. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is possible because this king, this child, this son that is given is going to bring justice. And this justice will never end. And his zeal, his determination, his energy, his desire to do it is what's going to bring it about, not me. And we know this happens at the cross. And this is why um, we can ultimately trust that this God is good and that he's for us. Because what happens is Jesus goes to the cross and he takes um, the light that he has and exchanges it for my and your darkness. He takes the joy that is uh, part of the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he exchanges it for your and my sorrow and pain. He takes the freedom of what it is to be the Son of God for all eternity and exchanges it for the yoke of sin, the slavery that is death. And he takes his peace And he exchanges it for our rebellion and our anger. He takes it all on himself, defeats it, and he rises to new life. And the Father and the Spirit restore him to light, to joy, to freedom, and to peace. And we are all invited in to receive that as well. This is why we can put our hope in Jesus. Because actually, it's not a door, it's a person. And he's not far off. He's here. And we don't need to work out if we can open it. He has. The language of the passage opens up objective and subjective. Objective, what God has done. Subjective for Isaiah is will you respond. The light has dawned. And Isaiah says to the people, do you see? The really cheesy line that vicars use uh, is the RSPCA line about, you know, Jesus is not just for Christmas, he's for life. Um, And the reason we use it is because it's true. 
That wasn't just hope for the people of Isaiah's day, nor was it just hope for the people of Jesus' day. Nor was it just hope for Christians. It's hope for everybody who would receive him. I wonder in your life where you fail to trust. I wonder in your life where you don't have any hope. I wonder in your life where you doubt the goodness of God. I wonder in your life where you carry kind of pain and anger and hurt. I wonder if you would look up and see that the light that has dawned is here. Shall we pray?